17. John chapter 17. Since it's been a little while since we've been here, let me read this prayer of Jesus. John chapter 17. Remember context. Uh, it's right before Jesus uh, is crucified. Uh, he's just left this time with his disciples of Passover, communion, and uh, he prays this prayer. John chapter 17 and verse 1. Hear the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I, no longer, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world might believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, we're back to this prayer of Jesus. My apologies for being gone so long. Uh, it's been very strange for me to be gone that long uh, and out of here that for that many weeks in a row. It's just um, time goes. 
But we're back. This is a good place to come back. And so this morning I want to recap and want to pull us back in so that in the weeks to come we can pick up some things as well that will be helpful to us. And I think some things this morning that will be helpful to us as well. Again, remember context. Jesus is praying this prayer on the night that he was betrayed. Uh, The hour had come. And so we find this in, in John's way of laying out how he explains the gospel to us. This hour for Jesus has come. It's a significant time. It's a very intimate moment in the life of our Lord Jesus. Some days before, he had said that his soul was troubled because the hour had come. And so he knew the meaning of what was to come. The hour had come. His soul was was troubled. He desired earnestly, he said, to spend this night with his disciples. He, he, He loved them, no doubt. Wanted to share with them because of the trouble on his own soul because the hour that had come because he knew what he was about to face he knew what they were about to face and so he wanted to spend this time with them thus he did not only that but he he knew the meaning of that moment that passover moment that crossover over moment from passover to his own supper that time when the significance of all would be made known and even more so that night as they watched And the days that would follow, the hour had come for him. And then he prays, not only this prayer, but we know he prays that earnest prayer, that gut-wrenching prayer in the garden in this intimate moment. For me, at times when I read this passage, I feel a little guilty stopping and staring. It's like I shouldn't watch. It's like this is something we shouldn't see. This is this is God the Son talking to God the Father. This is God incarnate talking to God in heaven in this very intimate moment. And so it seems impolite to stare. But it's here. Not for us to gawk, but for us to sit in awe and wonder of this moment in the life of our Lord Jesus. He prays. He prays that His Father would be glorified. He he prays that He would be glorified in His Father, glorified in such a way that He would be seen as the very Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the Lord of all, so that His Father would be glorified, so His Father would be known, you see. And so He prays that 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 would take place. But not only that, he, He prays for the disciples who are there and He prays for the ones who will believe through them. That is, for all who come to know Him through the word of the apostles, through the word of God, through the scriptures. So he prays for really all believers, all followers of Christ. And as he prays for them, he acknowledges that that these very ones for whom he prays, not the world, but these very ones for whom he prays, are the ones to whom he gives eternal life. And the ones to whom he gives eternal life are the very ones who know him, because that's eternal life. There can only be eternal life through knowing Jesus, through coming to the Father through Him. And so He says to the Father, I've given them Your Word and they've come to believe. They've come to know it. They've come to believe that You have sent Me. And that's really the most significant thing of all, to know that Jesus has come from God, that He's God in the flesh. And so He says, they know that. They've received Your Word. I've given it to them. And now He prays for them. And notice what he prays. First he prays that they would be kept in the Father's name. They would be kept in the Father's name. That is, that they would be secure there, that they would be guarded, that nothing would take them away from belonging to the Father, from having His name. Not only that, that they'd be kept 
from the evil one. That Satan himself would not be able to snatch them away. Not only that, he prays that they would have his joy. The very joy of Jesus. He prays that his joy would be in them. That they would have his joy. And then he prays that they'd be sanctified. That is, set apart. Sanctified means set apart, made holy. Set apart unto God. They'd be fitting for God. That he would make them, conform them into the very image of Christ. They would be sanctified. Not only that, he prays that they would be one. That they would be a community of people together. A community that would transcend not only their location and their geography, but also transcend their generation. That they would be one, all believers together. One with the apostles. One with all the believers that have come generation by generation, all holding forth to the same truth, all believing the same things, all living in such a way that would bring glory to God through dependence upon trust in Jesus. And so, see, that's what, that's what he prays, that they would be one. It would transcend organization. It would transcend institution. It would transcend geography. It would transcend generation. It would span the ages of, of believers, of followers of Jesus, of those who have been given eternal life, that they would be one, even as the Father and the Son were one. And the purpose of that oneness, of course, was to prove that, that, that the Son had come, that He really was from the Father, that He was reversing the curse, that He was reversing everything that was evil, and that He was bringing together a people, a very people of God, who would worship and glorify God. And this community, this community that would stand in contrast to the world, would show that Jesus is real, that He really is the Son of God, that He was really the Lord of glory. And not only that, He prayed this that they would come to be with Him and that they would see Him, that they would see His glory. Now, the question this morning is why is it did Jesus pray those things? Why, why, why those particular items? Why, why was that Jesus' list of things for which He prays for us? No doubt, because He loved His Father and He came to do His Father's will. And in each and every one of those things being kept in his name, being guarded uh, by the ev- from the evil one, having the very joy of, of eternal life, of knowing that and, and living that out, uh, being sanctified, being made holy, being one with other believers, seeing as the very desire of one's heart and the, the ultimate place of one's life, seeing the glory of Christ and being with him. All of those things are part and parcel of eternal life. And he loved his father and he wanted to bring to completion uh, that for which the father had, had, had brought him to the earth. You might remember, don't turn to this, but you could if you're quick. But in John chapter 6 and verse 39, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I sh- should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And so as Jesus is praying, we get a a glimpse into what that means for Him. He's saying, I want to raise them up on the last day. Therefore, Father, keep them. Guard them. Give them joy in this journey so that they can reflect me. Uh, Sanctify them. Make them holy so that they don't fall away. Uh, uh, Bring them together as one that they may be with me and see my glory. Praise that, no doubt. He prays it because he loves these very ones to whom he's given eternal life. And he desires all these things for them that they be kept 
that they have joy. That they be made holy. That they know the very fellowship of love one another that Jesus knew with the Father. And they would have that great eternal life of being with Him and seeing His glory. He loved them. But I think the reason he prays that, at least in this context, in the midst of the prayer, what this prayer suggests as the reason for which Jesus prays these particular items is because of the environment in which he left them. Indeed, the environment into which he would send them. He would leave them in the world. He would send them into the world. Notice how he puts it. In verse 11, we read this. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then in verse 14, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then verse 16. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And that follows on the heels of the sentence before verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And then verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So there's this world of which Jesus speaks. And he says that this world will hate them. He says they're not of it, but they're in it. And then he sends them even into it. So what is this world? And what is the sense in which those who have eternal life aren't of it, but yet in it, while those who do not have eternal life are both of it and in it? Right? In what sense, also, does this world hate those who have eternal life? And what is the meaning? What in what sense? is that they were sent into this world. We, you and I, people, we use this word world in a lot of different ways. Uh, we speak sometimes with the word world just simply as the earth. Talk about the big world in which we live. And we're including the land and the seas and the birds and everything. It's just the world, the earth, the planet upon which we live. We, we use it in that way. Sometimes we use it when we talk about the world of people. We talk about world opinion. Or what beauty pageant would be able to survive without comments about world peace, right? So we talk about world peace. Uh, and so it's, it's the, the, the world of people, if you will. But not only that, but often we use this word world in the context of the way that people live, their philosophy of life, their understanding of life. When I was growing up, there was a lot of talk about the communist world. Boy, we heard that. We shuddered. We knew because that was a way of thinking. It was a way of living. It was very different than our way of thinking, than, than our way of living. We can talk about the modern world. If you want to be cool, we can talk about the postmodern world and all these kinds of things. And when those, those, those little bits of language pops up, we realize we're talking about the way people think. We're talking about the way people live. When we come to the Scripture, we find those kinds of uh, uses of the word world as well. We find uh, that the Bible uses the word world in, in, in the context of the planet, the earth that has been created by God. And the scripture speaks this little expression of before the foundations of the world, that is before all this was made. It speaks about the world of people, but, but most especially 
especially when the Apostle John uses the word world, he uses it to describe the way that people think. This system of thinking, this system of living, this philosophy of life, this what we might call worldview, this view of the world about how life is to be lived. It's interesting that Jesus uses the word word, world 18 times in these 26 verses. He uses it in all those ways, but primarily in this latter way, especially when he talks about not being of the world and about the world hating. I mean, how can the planet hate? You see, there's something here in the world of people about philosophy, about ways people think about living their life that we can attach this word hate to. Being in yet not of this way of thinking, this way of living. So Jesus speaks of that in this context. Notice, again, not to be uh, utterly redundant, but just to think through this. Verse 14, again, Jesus said, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So you get this sense, we're talking about the world in this in this context, that 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 world here means something in contrast to Jesus, something in contrast to God. So we've got world on one side, world way of thinking, God way of thinking, Jesus way of thinking, Jesus way of understanding life on the other hand. And then again, in verse 16, Jesus said, they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. There's a sense of belonging. And he says that, 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 that they, meaning those who have eternal life, like Jesus, don't belong to this world's way of thinking, of acting, of understanding life. So there's a different way. He says we don't belong to that. We're not of it. It's not part of who we are. Verse 21, Jesus says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. There's a sense in which this world doesn't believe in Jesus. But those who have eternal life do believe that contrast again. Then verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. So there's a sense in which this world, into which they're sent, yet this world of which they do not belong, right? That this world doesn't know God, but those who have eternal life do. Just a page to the left, at least in my Bible, turning a page to John in chapter 14. We read this. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is Jesus speaking. And I will ask the Father, and He'll give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Again, the difference. Uh, The world cannot receive the Spirit of God. doesn't know Him, can't perceive Him, can't understand Him. But you, that is those who have eternal life, do receive the Holy Spirit, do know Him, do perceive Him. Then, in chapter 15, and verse 18, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, that is, if you belong to the world, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, 
but because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So you get this sense. There was a time when they, they did belong, but then Jesus rescued them out. He, he came and got them. He says, he says you know, I, I brought you out of this. And now, again, this contrast, this different, the world then uh, concerning uh, Jesus. So we see all of that to be the case. Turn to Romans and chapter 1. Here's the use of the word world. It's a different Greek word, if you know these things. Uh, but it's translated world because it means the same. Romans 12 and verse 1. The apostle writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I'll give you a second to catch up. Come on. It's good to hear pages turn. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age or this world, we could say. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So, there we see that there's another way of thinking, the world's way of thinking, and a transformed way of thinking. Now, notice... Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, prior to this renewal of the mind, this being conformed to the world, it's impossible to know the will of God. The world can't know the will of God. The world's way of thinking doesn't think enough like God to know His will. And thus it can't test it and can't, can't say, well, this is the will of God or that is the will of God. It takes a mind renewed, right? Not conformed, but transformed person by the renewal of one's thinking to reorient one's thinking as the God's way of thinking. Then, you see, you can test and know what is the true and pleasing will of God. Thus the apostle could write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He writes this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I'll thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believed. So there's a wisdom of the world that is not the wisdom of God. There's a difference. The world, not the wisdom of God. The world cannot see the will of God. The world can't discern that the cross is the wisdom and the power of God. But there is the wisdom of God. And that wisdom is what is to be true of those who have eternal life. Second Corinthians in chapter 4. In verse 4, speaking of those who do not have eternal life, the Apostle writes this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So there's God, small g, not big G, small g God, that underlies this world. And this world is contrary, thus this God is contrary to the true and living God. And His goal is to blind people's minds. 
so that they can't see it. And so on the one hand, the world, blinded, can't see the truth of God. On the other hand, those eternal life can see it. Ephesians in chapter 2, we read this this morning as an affirmation of faith. Just the first couple of verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Again, there's the spirit behind this world, the God of this world, Satan himself, if you will, that underlies all of that. And he's at work in all those who are disobeying God. Now, just as an aside, just so we don't get too puffed up here. Now, how is it that one gets from the world part to the other part? Now, later on in Ephesians chapter 2, but God, that's just an incredibly huge little couple of words. But God, it changes everything. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you've been saved. So just keep that in your head so you don't get puffed up. But, but we see the difference, world and otherwise. And then, of course, in 1 John and chapter 2, John, the, the writer of the gospel that we've just been reading, who records the prayer of Jesus, who uses the word world almost 60% of the time that it's used in the New Testament writes this, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so we see that, that this world way of thinking is focused on our own desires Fulfilling our own passions, not the passions of God, but our own passions, to, 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 to value that which is external, to see, I see with my eyes and I want that, and then to boast in what one acquires. Boasting in the sense to say, look what I've done. Look what I've acquired. Look how great I am. That's the thinking of the world. Fulfill your own desires. Go after everything that you can see so that others will come to you and say, look how great you are. And that, according to the world, is what will fill you with joy and what will bring eternal satisfaction to your soul. But the Scripture says, no, all that's passing away. That that lies in contrast with the will of God. And finally this one, 1 John chapter 4. In verse 4, we read this. Actually, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you're from God, you've overcome them, for he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. And they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. He says part of this world spirit is this thing called the spirit 
of Antichrist. Now that's one of those buzzwords. People run out and think, oh no, the end of the world. But, but the Apostle John said that the spirit of Antichrist was in the world then. The spirit of Antichrist is in the world now. And this is the spirit of the world. For as we've seen, it stands in contrast to that which is true of God. And so, it isn't only against God, it isn't only against Christ, but it stands over against Christ, meaning this. The spirit of Antichrist doesn't only say, don't believe in Jesus, but the spirit of Antichrist says, believe this, because this is better. So now, Jesus is saying to us that we're in that world, but we're not of it, meaning what? Meaning we don't belong there anymore. If you were here last Sunday and heard Dan Rudman preach, he preached concerning the fact that we don't live in the world in that sense anymore. We're not of it as we once were. That's what Jesus said when he was talking to Nicodemus. He spoke of being born again. He's saying something definitive happens in the life to one who has been given eternal life. They've been born from above. They've been born, born again by the Spirit of God. Something really happened. Something really changed. It's like the prophet Ezekiel said, that your heart of stone has been taken out and a heart of flesh has been put back in. John Wesley described it as this, in this very simple but profound statement. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Something really took place. He had a sense of it in his own life. And whatever feeling that is for you, however you feel stuff, people feel things differently. always hate to describe the way a feeling should be because you all, we all feel differently. I feel very differently, I've learned from some people. But um, our feelings are felt. For Wesley, it was a sense of being strangely warmed. But there's the sense of knowing that this is really true. That something definitive has taken place in the text from which Dan preached last Sunday. It was this one, that we have been transferred from the domain or the kingdom of darkness, this world that doesn't think like God, that doesn't know God, but we've been transferred. Really, you could translate that. My own translation is this, that we've been transplanted, been uprooted from one and rooted in the other, if you will. Sometimes a transfer, you just think you're changing buses. It's more than that. It's you've been uprooted from one and, 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 and replanted in another. Different soil, different fruit, if you will. So you've been transferred, trans, transplanted from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son whom He loves. And in this kingdom, it's so different because Colossians 1 says that we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins that we've been bought out of this one and, and put into this one, and that we've been forgiven our sins. And in the midst of all of that, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, we're new creations. The old's past. The new has come. Something definitive has taken place for those who have eternal life. And in that passage we read, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where the Scripture said, that the God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, notice, turn to this. I don't want to mess up by quoting it wrongly. I've been known to do that. But Second Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. That little expression, let light shine out of darkness. Now, when was the first time that God said something like that? Genesis chapter 1. When He was creating, when He was making. And when He made then, He made everything good, right? And so, the Apostle is saying, look, here's what happens. You're blinded, you're in darkness, you're dead, whatever language you want to use to say that you're in the world and of it. And now, something happens. God says something. He says, let light shine. Whew! And it does shine. When he says, let light shine, it shines. And he says, there's been a new creation. So if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, if you have eternal life, realize that that's all because something definitive has happened. And so Jesus is able to say to us, you're not of the world. But he knows that we're in it. And so he prays. Oh, Father, keep them. Keep them in your name. I know where they are. I know what this world is, and it's a a world of temptation. It's a world that says, don't believe in Jesus, but believe this. And it stands over and above and apart from Christ and to lure us in all the time. And so even our Lord Jesus, knowing our vulnerability, knowing even as the Son of Man who intercedes for us, and He lives to intercede for us, and He continues to intercede for us, and continues to pray, Father, keep them. Father, give them joy in the midst of this. For they really are satisfied satisfy them to such a degree in me and in this new kingdom that they don't want to go to the other one, that the other one isn't tempting at all, but give them joy in the midst of this one and make them holy and give them joy in this holiness. And not only that, Father, make them one, give them community, give them people with which they share this life and give them the desire and the anticipation and the certainty of knowing that a day will come and they really will see me and they'll see my glory and drive them home, Father, with that. Because you see, in this other world, it isn't God who defines us, but we define ourselves. We say, this is who we're to be. This is the passion that we're to pursue. And we direct ourselves. And we're directed by one another. It isn't God who directs us. And we find delight in this world, not in God, but but in our own definition of life and, and how God directs us. Whereas, God says, no, 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 let me come and define who you're to be. And let me lead you. And there you'll find delight. Now, this world is a difficult place to be, this world of thinking, this world of... this worldview, this contrary to God, and it's always coming at us with its glitz and its glamour. And Jesus knowing that we live here, and it it affects us in all kinds of ways. We live in in the effects of the fallenness of this world and and the evil of this world system. We get sick. We die. There's poverty. There's injustice. And we see all of that. And we're victims even of all of that. It isn't just because we're followers of Jesus. Therefore, we'll never get sick again. Therefore, we won't die. Therefore, life will be easy. Therefore, we'll never have injustice perpetrated against us. Or if we do, we just really won't mind. And, uh, and all those kinds of things. They'll be hurt in the context of our own lives. And those things come into life. And, and we begin to wonder, is this really true about Jesus? And Jesus keeps praying, Father, keep them in your name. Guard them. Protect them from the evil one. Give them joy. Satisfy their souls in the midst of a world like this, which is so contrary to the very things of God. Don't let their eyes be blinded, but but enable them to continue to see. He keeps praying that for us, you see. 
because he knows the world in which we live. And again, the world comes at us in overt kinds of ways. In the days of Jesus, some of these, these apostles will be martyred. They'll be killed. Others will be persecuted. That's happened ever since then, continues to happen even in our day. We live in a land of much more subtle temptation from the world. It's the smirk. It's the fact that we seem out of step with everyone else. It's the, the way of life that we live and they look at us and don't understand our views of sexuality. They don't understand uh, our views of love for one another. They don't understand our views of, of sacrifice to help. They don't understand our views of giving. Um, if, if people knew, who weren't believers, how much money you give away every year, what would they think of you? I mean, I think about that all the time. I see my laborers driving across in their SUV and they go, well, there goes my tithe. <laughs> you know? But I'd rather give it, wouldn't you, than to have the other. Uh, because that's the joy that you see it brings in the context of the kingdom and this dominion. And the sacrifices that, that we make to love one another and to give for one another and, and all of that. And even to forgive. There's a great advertisement concerning the subtlety of, of this world. And I think it's in, interestingly enough, World Magazine where I've seen it. It might have been Christi- Christianity Today. It's one of those ones. Uh, there's a picture of a very handsome or a very attractive, handsome man, attractive woman, young. And the, 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 the um, advertisement goes something like this. Are your kids ready to meet Dr. Smith? And it's Dr. Smith, who's just really cool looking and, and smart and has all the answers that the world would give concerning life. And the word to the parents is, this is where you're sending your kids when they go off to college. So are they prepared for that, to meet that, that particular really cool, wonderful professor? Because that's the way the world comes very subtly. Now, there's a very fascinating book out called The Last Lecture. You can find this lecture on the internet. Many of you have sent me links to it, and I've watched it a number of times now. And that lecture is entitled, The Last Lecture, colon, um, Fulfilling Your Childhood Dreams. It's given by a man named Dr. Randy Pausch. Dr. Pausch was, before his death, a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in entertainment technology coolest guy you'll ever see. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, it was a fascinating uh, hour and 16 minutes uh, lecture. Uh, it gripped you. You watched it. You didn't want to turn it off. Uh, he's in very much everything that a person would want to be. He's accomplished. He's attractive. Uh, seems to love his wife and children deeply. Seems to have a great life. And this whole lecture really, as in his own words, is, is to teach for his children Ultimately, how to live your life. So this is a very pointed, very agended talk. And again, he had pancreatic cancer. He was diagnosed a couple of years ago. Uh, When he gave this particular lecture, uh, he had been given six months to live. And that was a month previous. So according to his doctors, anyway, he had five months to live. And um, he ended up living a bit longer than that. But he gives this lecture in that context. Um... I would say that the lecture he he gave was the best the world has to offer. I cannot imagine, apart from God, a better counsel than this. 
And I don't mean to speak ill of him because I'm sure if he were my neighbor and I knew him or if he was a colleague, I would have cared for him deeply, that we would have shared fun together and life together. And though he was not a believer, as far as I know, I couldn't have been by this lecture, but uh, as far as I know, uh, was a decent man and a wonderful man and, and all of that. So I couldn't say enough about him. But yet, the talk only gets us to death. And there's nothing after that, really. It just lives this life. And, and great Ben Franklin, Boy Scout kind of, kind of counsel. Um, I thought I, yes, I do. Um, some of these things, he says, brick walls are there for a reason. They prove to us how badly we want things. So when you come up against a brick wall, I mean, isn't this what we tell our kids all the time? You know, I know you can't do this word problem uh, in the third grade. They know we can't do it either. But, uh, but you know, we want to press them on to do it. And it's a brick wall, but that's just how badly do you want to get this? Or if it's a job or if it's something. We, we want our kids to know that and not to give up just because it's hard. Great. Really, really good advice. Just find your passion and pursue it. Never get up, give up. Look for the best and find the best in everyone, no matter how long it takes. If you wait long enough, uh, uh, people will surprise you and impress you. He says, be good at something. It makes you valuable. Uh, how many times have we said that to our children? Um, at least to be good at something. Thing. Um, experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. Um, be prepared. Help others achieve their dreams. A loyalty is a two-way street. If others have been loyal to you, be loyal to them. Show gratitude. Don't complain. Work harder. You can't do it alone. All those kinds of things. Wonderful proverbs. Wonderful pieces of advice. But you see, there's no God there. There's nothing of God there. And His most significant talk, I think, is a six-minute talk you can find on the Internet as well that he gave to the graduates at Carnegie Mellon in May. He just died this July 25th, so just whatever that is, 15 days ago, 16 days ago. And the talk that he gave to the graduates at Carnegie Mellon, again, this prestigious institution at which he not only uh, was a graduate student but a professor as well, he said to them that he was in the ninth month after he had been told he had six, three to six months to live. So he had lived three months longer at that point than, than the doctors had thought he would. And someone had come to him and said to him, uh, you've beaten the grim reaper. Here was his response. He says, no, you don't re- beat the reaper by living longer. You beat the reaper by living well and living fully. For the reaper will come for us all. The question is, what will we do between the time we're born and the time he shows up? Now that is a great question. Put a tent around him and some sawdust and you've got a revival preacher with that. And he goes on to say, for when he shows up, it's too late. Yes, of course. But then he goes on to say this. It's too late to do all the things you kind of would have wanted to get on to do. His advice, it's not the things that we did that we regret on our deathbed, but the things we didn't do. His solace, as he puts it, is that when something came along that was cool to do, he grabbed for it. His advice, find your passion and pursue it. He says, honors and awards are nice things. Only to, to only the extent to which they regard the real respect from your peers and to be thought well of by other people that you think more highly of. 
He says, find your passion in my experience, no matter what you do at work in official settings, that passion will be grounded in people and will be grounded in the relationship that you have with this, these people and what they think of you when your time comes. And if you gain the respect of those around you and the passion and true love, and then he speaks of his love for his wife. And he says, if nothing else, I hope that all, that all of you can find that kind of passion and that kind of love in your life. Again, we would say, there's a sense of that which rings true. But there's nothing of God. There's only my passion. And I pursued it. And others respect me for it. Whereas Jesus puts it like this so pointedly. In John in chapter 5, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God only? Or as the Apostle Paul puts it like this, for all they, although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as, as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, as animals, birds, animals, and reptiles. And Paul finishes all that off by saying this, that though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You see, it doesn't always come in persecution. It doesn't always come in evil people. It doesn't always come in persuading us to do that which on its face looks horrible to do and wrong to do and destructive to do. It comes very often in the face of that which is reasonable and nice. People that we'd like to be like. People who are being honored. People that are well-respected. And we say, that's what I want to be. I want to be like that. I want to have the accolades of all the people around me. I want them to stand and applaud when I die. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not your audience. That's not the one who can satisfy and fill you with joy. Don't pursue your own passions. Pursue the passions of God. Don't Seek after the things you see and grab hold of everything that comes by, which is cool, but seek the direction of God in your life. It may take you down some hard paths, but follow after Him. Don't delight in the glory that you receive, but delight in the fact that God is glorified through you and in you. You see, we have this view of the world that such that we see all in Christ. It was that night that Jesus was betrayed. Again, the intimacy of that night. But everything that we believe and everything that we know is grounded and founded upon that very one who was there that night, our Lord Jesus, and all that he did in the, in the day and the days ahead. That's how we understand everything. We, we realize that God is, in fact, the creator. And when he created, he created everything good. And, and we look at, at, at that and, we, and, and then we look at the world and we say, but not everything is good. But there is injustice and there is poverty and there's sickness and there's death and there's abuse and there's jealousy and there's hatred and there's war and there's killing and there's fear and there's discouragement and there's depression and there's animosity in families and there's hurt between husband and wives. And we want to say, is everything really good? Ecclesiastes says, that which is crooked, who can make it straight? Well, the world keeps saying we can make it straight. We really can make it straight. 
just, 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 just give us some time and give us some money and give us some technology and give us some wisdom. We're, we're going to be able to set it straight. And, and then Jesus comes and says, no, 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 you can't set it straight. Only I can set it straight. Because the problem is deeper than you can imagine because the problem is really with you. It's that you've turned away from God. It's that you haven't honored Him and haven't given Him thanks. And, and you're stuck in that condition. And so everything that you do is futile because it's all for yourselves. And he says, but I will come and I'll reverse all of that because I'll come and I'll do it for you. I'll, I'll be the one who honors God and gives Him thanks. I'll be the very one who on your behalf lives in such a way that God is pleased and God is honored. Not only that, I'll take the sin of sinners upon myself because the deepness of your rebellion against God, the deepness of your ignorance, the deepness of your apathy against Him, the deepness of all of that is an offense against God and it, it, it thus, if He is just, requires His judgment. And so I'll take that too. And so He does. And so all that we believe is grounded and founded when Jesus said on the night that I was betrayed, I took bread and after giving thanks, I, I broke it. And after giving thanks, I gave it to my disciples and I said, this is my body which is given for you. Because you need it. You have no hope without it. This is my body which is given for you. Think about me. And then afterwards, again, he took this cup. And after giving thanks again, he gave this to his disciples and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins do this in remembrance of me he said listen I've shed my blood for you trust me come to me I'll define you I'll tell you what your life is to be come to me I'll direct you I'll lead you along this path of righteousness for my name's sake and I'll cause you to, to see how good this is. Not how good the world is, but how good this is to live by my definition, to live by my direction. And I'll satisfy you. And I'll give you joy. You delight in me. That's how we understand life. That's our view of things. To follow after In your bulletins, you'll notice this is new, only why I'm putting it out. I'm just doing it today. A time of quiet reflection. Let me just ask you to bow your heads for a moment. Just reflect upon your own life. Is this true of you? Do you believe this? Do you trust in Jesus? Is he the, is he the ground of everything you know to be true? Is it all based here in who he is and what he's done? Take that moment and then we'll together confess and then receive of him.